Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Iron & Wine began as a bedroom project for folky Sam Beam. Today, with a full band, he's selling out shows and placing songs on Hollywood soundtracks. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Kite of the Chicago Tribune. Iron & Wine performs live in the studio, and then we review the debut record from the indie rock supergroup Wild Flag. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Greg, that is the song The Glorious Land from the last album by P.J. Harvey, Let England Shake, which we're playing because it has just claimed this year's Mercury Prize across the pond in the U.K. We talk about the Mercury Prize when it's handed out every year because it's a very credible award, seemingly separated from commercial concerns, chosen largely by critics, and often choosing some surprising choices as the album of the year from the UK, up-and-coming artists that go on to make big news. In 2007, it went to Claxons, went to Speech to Bell in 2009, to Elbow 2008. Last year, went to the XX, a guest on Sound Opinions. Now it's going to Polly Jean Harvey, who first won a decade ago for her album, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. She was the first woman to win the prize then. Now she's the first person to win a second Mercury Prize. The album was about war in large part, and PJ, when accepting the prize, said uh, she noted that the last time she'd won, she'd been in Washington, D.C., watching the Pentagon burning from my hotel window. So much has happened since then. Now, despite the fact that you and I are both huge P.J. Harvey fans, we rated this album as a trash it, in my case, and a burn it in yours. I didn't think it was her best work. All the auto-harp on this record and that little girl vocal style, which was something new, and you were let down as well. 
Yes, Jim, it was disappointing. Just about every P.J. Harvey album up to this one has blown me away. This is not her best work as far as I'm concerned. And she did beat out some formidable competition, as you mentioned. Adele was nominated. She's uh, a multi-million seller both in the U.K. and in the United States. Everybody was raving about the indie darling of the year, James Blake. His self-titled debut also came out. But if they asked me, which they didn't, I would have awarded the prize to uh, Anna Calvi, who I think outdid P.J. Harvey with her self-titled debut album. I tell her, not gone, pop that, pop that for me. Haters can't see me, but them, but them still looking for me. And you could take that to the bank and deposit that. Put your two cents in and get a dollar back. Some people hang you out to dry like a towel rack. I'm all about I give the rest of the vowels back. That is She Will from the number one album in the country, Lil Wayne's The Carter Four. Huge sales week for Lil Wayne. One of those artists who is defying the trends, Jim. In 2008, The Carter Three, a huge selling album, million sales in its first week, even though record sales in general were down. And now with The Carter Four, 964,000 sales in its first week on the market. Uh, the second biggest selling first week album of the year. Lady Gaga had that 1.11 million debut week with Born This Way earlier in the year, but her numbers were pumped up a little bit by that 99 cent sale price that was being offered at Amazon uh, during that period. Lil Wayne didn't have any such crutch. He just went for it. The big thing with the Carter 4 sales is that it sold 362,000 digital copies in its first week, including 345,000 at the iTunes store alone, which looks to be a record-shattering rate of digital album sales at the iTunes store. It's significant, too, Jim, because it marks a turnaround year for the music industry in general. Lil Wayne, Lady Gaga have had big years, and the record industry seems to be breathing a little life into itself, particularly through two factors. Digital sales, I just gave you the numbers on the Lil Wayne record, and strong catalog sales. Catalog sales are up 3.5% the year to date, mainly because retailers have been discounting the price on some of those older items in their stores, and they're seeing a sales surge. Imagine that, Jim. You lower the price <laughs> of something, people tend to buy it more. Retailers if, have been saying that for three decades. Exactly. If the record industry had figured that out about 10 years ago, they might not be in the shape they're in right now. There's a third factor in why they say record sales are up, and that is the demise of one of the biggest peer-to-peer file-sharing sites, LimeWire. In a court case, it was shut down last October. And they say the music industry is, as a result, benefiting from the fact that consumers no longer have easy access to illegal peer-to-peer files on the net, so they're going to these illegitimate sources. And as a result, we're seeing a pretty significant uptick in sales. Whether the industry can sustain it remains to be seen, but it is shaping up as the best year for the record industry in about a decade. Let me bring you songs from the woods To make you feel much better than you could know Better than you could know Dust you down from tip to toe Dust you down from tip to toe Show you how the garden grows Show you how the garden grows Hold you steady as you go Hold steady as you join the chorus if you can It'll make you an honest man. You know, Greg, rockers are known for carrying all sorts of contraband. 
they've always got their hands on something they shouldn't. But rarely has anyone accused a rocker of breaking the law for carrying wood. This was a very strange story that broke in late August when the federal government, agents from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, shut down the Gibson Guitar Factory in Memphis to serve search warrants. Gibson, of course, makes some of the most famous guitars in rock and roll. The SG, the Les Paul, the Flying V. You know, it's second only to Fender as the coolest company in rock. This is the second time the Gibson Company has run afoul of the federal government for something uh, called the Lacey Act, originally passed in 1900 to regulate trade in bird feathers for hats. But it was amended in 2008 to cover wood and other plant products. Some of these exotic woods, Greg, in particular ebony, are very rare and endangered, and the governments exporting them to the U.S. have restrictions. The U.S. has restrictions about importing them. In 2009, Gibson went through a court hassle about buying wood from Madagascar. It denied any wrongdoing. Now, this raid was about ebony and rosewood from India. This is the very fine wood that's used in the fretboards of these instruments. Gibson, as I said, is denying any wrongdoing here, but the federal government is prosecuting it nonetheless. Gibson's gotten good marks from people like the Rainforest Alliance and Greenpeace for being very conscious about importing woods and not endangering forests, for working with these other foreign governments to replant trees that they've cut down so that the world can rock, okay? (laughs) But sometimes there is a middleman provider in between, and that may be where things have gone wrong with bad wood, wood we shouldn't have getting into the Gibson factory in Memphis. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that song is called Me and Lazarus by our guest this week, Iron and Wine. Now, the man behind the band is Sam Beam, a South Carolina native turned Texas artist who's been recording for the past decade. He started doing uh, lo-fi demos on his four-track machine, but with each release, his music grew more ambitious, and the latest is called Kiss Each Other Clean, which was produced by Brian Deck. Now, Sam's path into music was rather circuitous. He started out as a film guy, getting his Master of Fine Arts from Florida State, and that's perhaps fitting for an artist who has lent his songs to a number of soundtracks since then, and we're talking about movies like Garden State and, most recently, Twilight. So we began our conversation by asking Sam Beam how he got interested in art and film. When we talk about art, when we talk about film, it can mean any myriad of things. What were you specifically interested in in art and film? It's hard to say. I mean, I was just a creative kid, you know, with about a, a bunch of creative energy. So it went. sometimes it went to drawing, sometimes it went to writing. Filmmaking was a lot of fun because it's such a multidisciplinary thing. You could do a lot of things at one time. That's why I was drawn to it. You could tell a story. You could, you know, concentrate on the image making, music, all this stuff. And I was always doing music in the spare time, and then things just kind of 
got drawn into one <laughs> direction. You know, I just sort of went where more of the interest was. I will say it's a lot cheaper to make music than it is to make movies, that's mm-hmm. for sure. And you can do it by yourself. You don't need a crew of 20, you know? Yeah, that's what I thought when I started. And now look Before we stray from it, Sam, I've heard that Iron and Wine, the name, came from uh, something you'd seen on a, on a store shelf when you were making a film. Yeah, I was working on a movie in South Georgia somewhere, and we were shooting in this country store, you know, it was like a period kind of thing, and there was this stuff on the shelf called Beef, Iron, and Wine. I'd never heard of it, but, it, you know, it was with the castor oil and those kinds of home remedies that people used to think were good for them. Mm. But it sounded disgusting, but I, at the same time, it just struck me as a strange poetic combination of words. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of <laughs> described in a weird way what I was trying to do, you know, what I recognized in my writing trying to, you know, describe life in a poetic way where you embrace the good and the bad at the same time, and it's all part of the soup. Why adopt an identity at all? Why become Iron and Wine rather than just recording as Sam Beam way back then? Well, which one sounds better? (laughs) I mean, it's that that simple. I mean, no one's going to... It's also about, you know, masking the maker and concentrating more on the work. I I enjoy Mm -hmm. that. I enjoy being behind the camera, as it were. Now, you were uh, recording... I, I presume a lot of songs on on this four track that you oh had at bought, the beginning right? yeah. yeah I mean you know there were years worth of material I was doing it for years mm-hmm. you know in my spare time um, and so yeah there's lots and lots of lots of material um, you know some better than others <laughs> well well did you think did you do that with the intent that someday I'm going to show this to somebody with the hopes that I'll release a record or was it just kind of like a little well, hobby at that point it was definitely a hobby I mean I didn't have any designs for it at all at the beginning you know it was just a way to spend your spare time in a creative way you know I enjoy doing it but at the same time in the back of your head you're always even if you don't have a design to go and actually pursue releasing it in your back of your mind whatever you're doing whether you're painting or whatever you're doing, you're saying, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do this for a living, you know, do what you enjoy for a living? And um, so, you know, I can't say that I had no intention at all. I definitely hoped that, you know, someday I would be able to do what I enjoy for a living. And uh, luckily it's kind of worked out for the time being. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, from those humble beginnings, one man, four tracks on a quarter-inch tape (laughs) cassette deck. Why don't we... Get a tune first. Sure, sure. This is uh, one of the newer tunes called Tree by the River. Mary Ann, do you remember the tree by the river when we were 17? Canyon wall, the call and the answer, and the mare and the pasture, it's black and barren its teeth. I recall the sun in our faces, stuck and leaning on graces, being strangers to change. Girl, and a pretty pair of blue eyes, but 
isn't kind or unkind, you like to say. But I wonder too, what it is you're saying today. Beautiful song from Iron and Wine called Tree by the River. We are joined here in the Sound Opinion studio by Sam Beam, who is Iron and Wine, plus his band, Stuart Bogey, Jim Becker, Marketa Erglova, Ida Shagasami, and Nick Luca. Now, we get a hint of where you started, and now we've got this fine band here, all this orchestration, but those initial recordings that you made in the first record you put out in 2002, very different from what you sound like now. Clearly, the, the sound has been more fleshed out over the years. Did you just feel a little bit more confident doing something a little more quiet and low-key at the start? Yeah, given what I knew how to do, uh, which wasn't a lot. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a trained musician. I just kind of you know pick around and find stuff on the guitar. And given what I was writing about, I thought it was appropriate. You know, And given the limitations of what I thought the limitations of my voice were at the time. You know, I've been doing it for 10, well, over 10 years now, and... Hopefully I learned something. <laughs> yeah, right, sure. Um, but I definitely learned how to project and, you know, use my voice a bit more. But at the same time, I thought it was appropriate to the material that I was writing. You know, a lot of it, the sentiment, they were love songs, and they weren't, I didn't feel like the sentiment meant to be, was meant to be yelled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, strangely enough, I mean, the song that we just played was in that, started in that group of early songs. I mean, it started a long time ago. You try your best to make, you know, a strong foundation and then you know, you can dress it up however you like you can approach it with a big band or you can you know approach it with just a you know one guitar you know just they they say different things though you know it just depends on how you want to interpret it so it's that's what's fun about music you know each one is its own little script Last I saw mother, she rose from a chair When they caught me, I just finished combing my hair Cause a rabbit will run and the cold hasn't long with the man Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more with Sam Beam and Iron and Wine. Then, stay tuned for our review of the new album by indie rock supergroup Wild Flag.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That's Big Burned Hand by our guest this week, Sam Beam, better known as Iron and Wine. That song is from his latest album, Kiss Each Other Clean, which is a bit more pop-oriented than his earlier records. During our conversation, I asked Sam about his own memory of discovering pop music, the sort of experience you have sitting in the backseat of your parents' car listening to the radio. What, what, what do you remember? The plastic seats and... <laughs> smell of cigarettes and, and you know and, and Fleetwood Mac that's what, that's what it was rumors coming yeah you know those are some of my earliest memories uh, you know because it was before you thought of you know histrionics of music you just absorbed whatever was coming at you you know it wasn't necessarily something that we went for at the beginning you know it was just something that kind of came about in the process of making the songs you know you like i was saying before you try different versions of songs you know interpret them in different ways and we do lots of different versions of each tune and then i i always put my foot in my mouth at these interviews like at the beginning of like a rec you know we put a record out and they say okay what are you doing now and this one was like you know i said well among other things there's a 70s thing, there's this Afro-pop thing, and then you go, oh, it's a 70s record, that's cool. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's so, I'm just deciding, like, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to say. So rock critic or sheep uh, is what you're saying, and <laughs> I'm just not, asking the same say, questions over and I'm over again. I'm not going to say that, I'm saying that you got to watch what you say. You want to play another song for us? T- tell yeah. us what you're going to play and tell us, you know, where this one came from before. Sure, uh, this is a song called Lion's Mane, it's off the first record, and it's a love song. Now we're going back. Yeah, here we go. Hold on. Run like a race for family when you hear like you're alone The rusty gears of morning, faceless busy foes We gladly run in circles but the shape we're meant to make is gone is a tired symphony you hum when you're awake love's a crying baby mama warned you not to shake love's the best sensation hiding in the lion's mane Oh, wow. 
love It burns us into the oil Let our drip into your bed The water's there to warm you And the earth is warmer Iron and Wine on Sound Opinions, reaching back to early in the new millennium for Lion's Mane. All right, so Sam, I got to ask you, it should almost be illegal, right? Singing the way you just did with those gorgeous back <laughs> from Ida and, and Marquetta. I, I mean, that's like, this makes what does it that feel fun. like, man? I feel great, man. What are you talking about? I, I, just, got, I just wanted to know if it, if, it, if it felt as great as it sounded and looked. Yeah, while I, you feel, were... I feel really blessed. Yeah. Really blessed. I mean, it's an ever-evolving lineup when you're on the road, right? Yeah, we kind of switch switch folks around a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, each new band kind of you know brings new stuff out of the songs. It's kind of a fun way to you know reinterpret your own material. Well, and I would I would venture to say it goes back to where we started, kind of a filmic uh, attitude, right? I mean, when you can't make yeah. a film alone. I mean, you can, you can try, but but filmmaking is so collaborative, and it seems yeah. like you've always thrived on working with different people. Yeah, well, I I remember trying to translate what was going on in my head to tape, and always being frustrated because it's impossible, and so to set yourself up to be pleasantly surprised is much more fun. There's a film that had pretty big role in your in your career um that was the uh, the zach braff movie the garden state movie yeah your cover of uh, the postal service song such great heights was on there yeah and you came to that song before postal service had actually put it on a record i believe right yeah well we played our first cd release show in seattle and ben came because we had a lot of mutual friends he asked me you know they were getting ready to put out the postal service stuff and he asked me to um cover it you know, for a B-side, he wanted to do B-sides, so we just got other people to do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, which I should figure that out, man. I still haven't figured that out, <laughs> other people do the work. Um, but, uh, you know, he seemed real nice, and I liked the Death Cab stuff, and the song seemed cool, so I was like, sure. I think it's a sign that the freckles All right, as a filmmaker, did you ever see that movie, and what did you think of it? Oh, man, don't ask me. 
<laughs> um, As a film professor, I think yeah. it's fair ground. Everybody's a yes. critic on sound opinions. Uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, oh, not because I didn't want to. It's just, um, you know, I have other responsibilities. Well, you're speaking as a, as a man, a family man. Five, yeah. Five kids, right, That's Sam? what I mean. Yeah, I five do. Five daughters. Yeah, it's a little crazy. But, you know, that's what I mean. I don't get to uh, run out and catch everything that I used to, unfortunately. Did they think Dad was cool? when? Dad's uh, never cool, uh, man. Yeah, but you had a song that's in the big prom scene in Twilight. <laughs> You and I could have been in the movie. I could have been a vampire myself, and Dad is not cool. Well, what's the what's the range in age of the daughters? Uh, now we're up to thirteen, and the youngest one is one. She just turned a year. Right. How about another song? Yeah, this was uh, another older one. It's called Woman King. Am I ready? King from Iron and Wine on Sound Opinions. 
I have to ask you, Stuart is over here imitating a tuban throat singer. <laughs> we, you have to explain that sound. It's a bass harmonica. It's very cool. Fairly unique, uh, but lots of fun, isn't it? Yeah, looks, it was... <laughs> looks kind of like one of those homemade pasta makers. <laughs> you have a crank on it. That was a title track to to an EP, right? Two thousand five. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a unique set of tunes because they were all biblical figures. Yeah, they were all from the Bible. It was really when the the Woman King song came about, the light went off. and said, "Oh, well, I got all these other ones. Let's put them together." So it was, you know, it was a fun little serendipitous thing. Mm. Yeah, you've talked about this already, but I wanted you to amplify it a little bit. The whole idea of of writing stories in these songs. I was glad to hear you say in in, in some interviews where you say, you know, I'm not into this therapy stuff. <laughs> Music is therapy. <laughs> Confessional. That's that's for somebody else. There's plenty of that around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it just a case of man? If I hear another song from some guy ripping his heart out because some girl broke up with him, <laughs> uh, I don't. The world doesn't need any more there of those. Are, there are a lot of them. Yeah, you know, I mean, some people do it really well. I just don't think that's my forte. Are there any songwriters in particular that you listen to that may have influenced it? And we know about the art and the film world stuff oh, coming in. But. Sure. I mean, you know, it runs the gamut. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. If you look for, you know, the more literal, you know, you've got your Dylans and Coens and Towns Van Zants and all, you know, the songwriters, songwriters. But then you also have, I mean, the Motown writers were incredible and Sammy Kahn was incredible. You know, it just depends on what you're looking for. Perhaps it was a function of when you, you came on the scene and recording for Sub Pop, an indie label, but there was that whole yeah. Nick Drake renaissance going on early in the 2000s, and you got yeah. compared early on a lot to him. Did he have any impact on you? Oh, of course, yeah. I love that stuff. Mm. But, you know, at the same time, I s- heard his stuff sound really similar to J.J. Kale. You know, it just depends mm-hmm. on how you approach the mic. That's the good thing about song, you know, or art in general. There's no... It's not a math problem. There's not a right or wrong thing. There's not one thing that's good and one and everything else is bad. I love Leonard Cohen, but I also love LCD sound system. It was was great. You know, it, it depends on what you're... What, it's such an emotional thing that you have to it, too. You know, it just depends on what mood you're in as to what, what songs hit you in a, on a certain day. We talked about, too, the some of the biblical references in your song. There's a lot of religious references. Some people infer from that that you have a strong religious background. I know you right. grew up in the Southeast. You were probably yeah. inundated with that stuff as a kid. Oh, yeah. But how does that figure into your songwriting? Well, that's what it, what it is. I mean, that's how it figures. I grew up in the Bible Belt, and that's, those are the stories that we learn. I mean, that's our mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it's, to be blunt, it's permeated our whole culture. I mean, historically, these are the stories. This is our common mythology. You know, I'm not a religious person. I don't write songs intentionally to exclude people. I mean, I hope people in France or anywhere can listen to the songs and enjoy them, but they are specifically American in context. Uh, It's also fun as a device. You know, once you establish that a lot of people know who these characters are, you can kind of flip them on their head. Like, say, instead of saying Joe and Bill went to McDonald's, you say, or, or, you know, uh, Joe and Bill, who one represents you know, jealousy and one represents in super naive and innocent, but they really represent, you know, the duality in us all. You can say Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and have some amount of certain certain amount of economy. And then you could say Cain and Abel went to the McDonald's and 
sold some crack and went and <laughs> bought a you know Lady Gaga right. record. <laughs> <laughs> do Do you think about that with uh, having the five daughters aging, you know, one to to thirteen? You You're probably not bringing them up where they're steeped in this mythology, so it it's almost completely yeah. different for them. I mean, like, how, yeah. how do you explain the Bible to a kid who hasn't? been raised with it it's a real issue i mean honestly my wife and i have very specific conversations long and there's no real right or wrong answer because you know it has a a lot to do with breaking away what you know you know a lot of i feel like i should i should impart those stories onto them because it's what i knew but then you say well you know does that mean that everything that i did was right look at what a mess i am (laughs) maybe i don't want to do that exactly so you know i feel like you just sort of create your own life you know as you go along and I feel like my parents' life was a lot different than, you know, my life was a lot different than my parents' upbringing, and so my kids shouldn't be any different. (laughs) You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are here in the Jim and Kay Maybe performance studio with Iron and Wine. Sam, you're going to give us another song? Yes, a newer song called Half Moon. All our footprints in the snow The evening glow Leaving Oh, night noise in the winter time I wake beside you on the floor Counting your breathing
Half Moon from the new Iron and Wine album, Kiss Each Other Clean, here on Sound Opinions. We want to thank Sam Beam and uh, Iron and Wine for being our guest today. Thank you, Sam, for coming in. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. It's nice to be here. To watch video of our session with Iron and Wine, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to invite you to share your sound opinions on the air. Want to comment on something we talked about on Sound Opinions or anything under the rock and roll sun? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we review the debut album from Wild Flag. And then Greg pops a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. King out of milk, I knew from the auction. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the new indie rock supergroup Wild Flag. The song is called Romance. Greg, you and I saw this group at one of its first shows at the South by Southwest Music Conference last March. There's been a lot of buzz and a lot of anticipation about its debut release. They put out one single early on, Glass Tambourine, which we were very fond of. Now they've got their full album, 10 songs long, recorded with engineer Chris Woodhouse. Who is Wild Flag and why do we say supergroup? Two members of the band the guitarist Carrie Brownstein and the drummer Janet Weiss, both of them also sing, were part of that trio Sleater Kinney, one of the defining bands in indie rock in the 90s. Mary Timoney has been kicking around even longer. Based for a long time in Boston, she started her career with an influential band called Autoclave, went on to Helium, has had a uh, fruitful solo career recording just as Mary Timoney, and also has collaborated with everybody under the sun in between. The final member completing the band used to be in a group called The Minders. Her name is Rebecca Cole. She's on keyboards. These forces came together and seemingly have joined the best of all of the past bands into this new group, Wild Flag. Let's play a song and then give our review. This is the track Racehorse on Sound Opinions from Wild Flag.
That is Racehorse from the debut album by Wild Flag, self-titled album. Jim, one of the albums of the year. I'm just going to start right out with the lead. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with you right out. <laughs> it yes. is a fantastic record. Sleater Kinney obviously has a huge influence here because two of the four members of the band were in Sleater Kinney, one of the great bands of the 90s and early 2000s. Rightly or wrongly, I think Sleater Kinney was typecast as a fairly serious, intense, somewhat intellectual band, angry, questioning the world around them. This is a different kind of intensity. This is more about letting go, the joy of losing yourself in the moment. There's a lot of songs here about dancing, about music, about sound, about losing control, about lust, about physicality. And the music matches that mood, that sense of abandon. The guitars taking off. Timony and Carrie Brownstein on those guitars, jousting off each other, playing off each other. Janet Weiss, oh my God. She plays drum fills like guitar riffs. I mean, they are little songs in themselves. <laughs> She's a powerhouse. She's really guiding a lot of these songs, but not in a show-offy kind of way. I mean, these are tightly arranged songs, and at the same time, they have the ability to go off for moments. We heard that in Racehorse, where they, where they just sort of take off together, yeah. and it's a really powerful sound. And last but not least, the pop element is here. The melodies in these songs are really strong, and one of the key reasons for that is the backing harmonies. It's not just about those lead vocals, but the beautiful counterpoint harmonies that this band constructs. So, one of the great rock albums of the year. It's a buy it all the way for me. Well, I couldn't agree more, but for different reasons. Your fondness for Sleater Kinney is well known to people who've listened to this show. My problem with them, while they had attitude and energy, I didn't think they had the strength of the melodic songwriting. Mary Timoney is the secret weapon here. I've been a huge fan of hers throughout her entire career. She's got a little prog rock in her, and her voice, I think, is the dominant one, and her talent for bringing melodies and weirdness. There's a little bit of Rick Wakeman, believe it or not, in the keyboards on this album. That having been said, overall the vibe is sort of nugget psychedelic pop, mm. garage rock from the early 60s, combined with post-punk melodicism, buzzcocks, magazine, wire, and that combination comes together. Racehorse is nothing short of a new millennial rewrite of Patti Smith's classic horses, and it's every bit as timeless. This band is going to have legs if it keeps going on, and this is one of the albums of the year. You're absolutely right. A double buy it. 
I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the deserted island and play a song we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what have you got for us? Jim, uh, James Brown liked to say he's got to give the drummer some. I want to give the backup singer some on today's Desert Island. I was thinking specifically of what I think is the greatest backing group of all time, the Pips, who uh, backed up Gladys Knight, of course, for all those years. The group started in the early 60s. By the early 70s, they were flourishing. I think it was a golden era for soul music. And one of the reasons was the sophistication, not only of the songwriting, but of the arranging. And this whole concept of call and response, the basis of gospel music, which is essentially what soul music is, secular gospel music. And on this particular song, the biggest hit that Gladys Knight and the Pips ever had, the interaction is the absolute key to the song. The song is all about her interacting with these three backing singers, one of whom happened to be her brother, Bubba Knight, or also her cousins in the group, Eddie Patton and William Guest. So they had this close familial bond before they even began singing together. And on this song, you can hear them as not only her backing group, but her advisors, her confidants, her conscience, talking back to her about her troubled narrative in this song. She's basically singing to her lover, who is a failed musician. He came to L.A. seeking the big dream. It didn't work out. Now he's taking that midnight train back to Georgia, you know, to start his life again. And she's got to decide whether or not to go with him or not. And she finally says, you know, I'm going with him. It's a beautiful, wonderful song. It was originally written by a country songwriter named Jim Weatherly. And his original title for the song was Midnight Plane to Houston. (laughs) It doesn't have the same ring. Exactly. Sissy Houston changed the name of the song when she recorded it a little bit earlier than Gladys Knight to Midnight Train to Georgia. And then Gladys and the Pips took it and ran with it. And I think the whole concept, the whole beauty of the song is the interaction that they have. And who can forget, you've got not, not only listen to this song, but imagine, and everybody can imagine those Pips background choreography, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, when they're singing the song, they're doing some stepping moves, man. They're out on that dance floor. Yeah, you know, they're the twirling truth, around. The truth is, you and I have spent our entire lives trying to be one one-hundredth <laughs> as cool as Bubba and the other pips, and we've always fallen short. When the, when the train whistle blows, everybody can see that left knee in the air, the right arm pulling that conductor's <laughs> train whistle down. It's Gladys Knight and the Pips with Midnight Train to Georgia on Sound Opinions. So he's leaving the life he's come to know. Ooh. He said he's going. He said he's going back to find. Going back to find. Ooh, 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 what's left of his world. The world he left behind. Not so long. He's leaving, leaving. Oh, that 
was Gladys Knight and the Pips with Midnight Train to Georgia, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we're going to get a primer in funk from the man himself, uh, one of the men who invented the one, Bootsy Collins. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Iron and Wine was recorded by A.J. Strauman and Mary Gaffney. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with help from Annie Minoff and our fearless leader, our executive producer, a man who wanted to be in the pips but fell short, is Tori Southside Malatia. Sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone. Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Tim and Greg. This is Rachel calling from Alameda, and I was listening to your podcast, Songs About Work, and thought, oh, I know the perfect song for this. It's one of my favorites. It's The Roaches, Mr. Selak. Mr. Selak, can I have my job back? I've run out of money again. It's kind of sad. It's definitely funny. It's all about trying to go out there and make it and then not having it work out and having to crawl back to your old boss. In this case, she's wanting to be her waitress again just so she can have a little cash. I know a lot of people have been in that situation, especially lately. Just wanting to have any job, any job. So thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. Is to have my old job hey, this is Connor Crockford, uh, listening to Sound Opinions. Really like your thing about careers and career songs. I just want to say I'm a 19 year old college student with like 20 bucks in my bank account, and honestly, it's terrible for me. I, I can't find a job anywhere. You know, my, my personal pick for one of my favorite kind of unemployment songs, again, going back to 70s punk rock, is 17 with the Sex Pistols. Oh, 
modern day, I really love Into the Wayside by Ceremony. They're a Bay Area band, and to me, they really appeal because it's just all about being disgusted with everything around you because you have nothing. Anyway, thanks. Bye. Hi guys, my name is Greg Hurd. I'm from Toronto, Canada. I'm a music junkie like you guys, and I was listening to your work song show, and you were talking about career opportunities by The Clash. My understanding was that it was a vaguely socialist program put in by the British government where you really didn't have a choice about what job. You went into the uh, career opportunities office, and they basically gave you what you got. And that's the point of the song, right? Thanks a lot, though. You guys are great. Cheers. Bye-bye. They offered me the office of me the job. They said I better take anything they got. Do you wanna make tea at the BBC? Do you wanna be? Do you really wanna be a job? Career opportunity, the one that never knocked. Every job I offer used to keep you up the dock. Career opportunity, the one that Hey, this is Cheryl from Wimberley, Texas. Great Labor Day show. However, I don't know if I missed this song, but many, many years ago, coming from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there was a major company that was bought out by a company down in Dallas. A bunch of us were downsized. I will never forget the day that we got into the sound room of the company, put on the record player, Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. <laughs> On the loudspeaker to the entire corporation. Take this job and shove it. Anyway, when you did your show today, it reminded me of that great feeling. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.